Hello, Mike. So nice to see you. It's wonderful to be here to meet you. I cannot wait to dig into your brain and ask you some questions. I um, I always wanted to know somebody who is uh, from the person just like you, who is specialized in changes. Ah. Usually when somebody comes to psychologists, they want to have, like, they want to change something in their life. They want to change some of the habits for better habits. But you know what? I wanted to talk about habit of feeling anxiety, habit of feeling depression, habit of feeling stressed. So something that we think that we are in this situation, but when we actually look at this from perspective of somebody who has knowledge, it's just a habit. Yeah. Habit in your practice. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, there's a certain amount of kind of anxiety that I've been feeling doing an interview right now and uh in, in some senses, that's kind of a wonderful thing, um, but I, I would say it's been, you know, a part of my life for a long time, and it, it, there are definitely some habitual aspects of it. Because you you ha you did something that for me was absolutely amazing and fascinating, because you were helping uh, swimmers for seven years uh, to perform better. Yeah, I had this unique opportunity um, that, you, you know how... <laughs> you'll do almost anything for your children, right? And I was not a swimmer. I was actually a cyclist and a runner, um, raced, raced bicycles at a pretty high level when I was younger, but uh, was a terrible swimmer, to be honest. But then when my, my kids got into it, I, you know, as a supportive parent, wanted to help out a little bit and uh, turned into helping out a little bit more and getting into some of the coaching. And then I ended up coaching for almost nine years um, with, with the club and had some incredible opportunities to implement some of the things that I've learned in my, um, my counseling practice and um, in, in my work and really transformed, I think, even the work that I'm doing, doing now. Because what's fascinating for me when I read about, because sports psychology was always incredible to me and you, you can use it in so many areas, this knowledge from sports psychology. And I just remind myself a story when I was preparing for our um, talk, how um, uh, not my favorite psychologist, Tony Robbins, is, uh, told once his story that um, that the woman came to him and said that she cannot perform. She was like some kind of artist because she said she was going on a stage and she feel like her heart beating and she's just, she's going to lose her senses. She's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And Tony Robbins said that after a while he met some like superstar, I don't know, uh, like Bono, let's say. I don't sure. remember who it was. And he said, I go on a stage and I feel like my heart beating, like I feel I'm going to vomit right now. And I feel like, yeah, I'm ready. So, and I was thinking like we all have different interpretation of this. And sometimes we just have a habitual thinking that this is something stressful or this is something depre depressing to us. Instead of because of magical thinking, because of, uh, if I'm going to be uh, relaxed, definitely something going to uh, go bad. So we have this habit of feeling overstressed, over depressed, over anxiety. And when you are working with the people who need to perform like like a swimmers, you need to learn them different habits of habits like to use the stress as something good. So can you tell us something more about this? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really one of the, you know, um, the hearts of Team CBT, which is, of course, developed by, by David Burns. And he really focuses on, you know, 
what are the real benefits of the symptoms that we're experiencing? Let's look at this from an entirely different angle. And certainly as an athlete, I know for myself, there were times when I was preparing for a, you know, a big competition where I became overwhelmed and it actually limited my performance. And um, then learning uh, a shift in my perspective of how I can actually use that, right? Uh, I often say my, my anxiety is my best friend now because it, it elevates my performance. It enhances uh, me. And when it becomes a problem is when it's kind of over the top extreme and I'm seeing it in, in, a, um, in a negative way rather than in a, in, a, in a beneficial and helpful way. And certainly with my, you know, with my athletes, um, I, I mean, I'll never forget this one young girl I was working with. She's probably eight or nine years old. And we had our first kind of swimming competition that she attended that year. And she was so nervous. She was terrified. She didn't want to do her race. And her her mom was trying to calm her down. And my assistant coaches were trying to calm her down. And, and they brought her over to me. And and I said, oh, what, what seems to be the problem? She says, I, I can't do the race. I'm, I'm too scared. And I, so I asked her the, the question. I said, huh, okay, well, let, let's... Let's talk about this for a minute. Um, how scared are you on a zero to 10 scale, right? And she said, oh, like seven out of 10, like really high. And I said, oh, well, I, 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 that'll never do because I don't think that's high enough. Uh, I want you to be eight out of 10. You see, because my, my sense is that you really want to do well, don't you? And she said, yeah, I, I want to do well. And you want your your mom and your friends to be proud of you. Yeah, and, and do you really um, and want to bring your best per performance for the team too? Yeah, absolutely. I said, well, then I, I need you to, to be actually even more anxious. And she said, well, that doesn't make sense. I said, well, tell me, what are you really afraid of? She said, well, when I go to sit up before the race and line up over there, those, those boys from the other team are scary. I said, well, let's look at who you're sitting with. And we looked at the list and I said, oh, yeah, well, that will be scary because it looks like Susie is sitting beside you. Well, Susie was one of her best friends. She said, well, Susie's not scary. I said, well, what about, what about Julie? Oh, well, Julie's awesome. And I said, well, I don't know if I can let you do this race because you might be too relaxed if you sit with Julie and Susie over there. I said, so if you have to promise me that you can be at least eight you know, scared. And she said, oh, I can sit with them. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll let you do one race if you can promise me that you'll be at least seven or eight scared of, of doing the race. Keep your anxiety really high. And she said, oh, that's, that's silly. And she went over and did her, her race. And she was well prepared and she did well. She actually won her heat and she came back and, and she was excited and I said, okay, well, let me just check in with you. How, how scared were you before the race? She said, oh, I wasn't really scared at all. I said, oh, I don't think I can let you race anymore. And she just laughed, right? And she said, oh, that's silly. I'll be fine. I'll just be excited about it, right? So the whole idea was that sometimes when we try to push our anxiety away, we try and push our depression away, it actually can make it worse rather than honoring the good things about it. How most athletes... You know, when they get prepared for a top-level event, they call it kind of being on the edge or being in the zone, and it elevates their performance. They're energized. I, 
I don't want an athlete who doesn't care at all. They won't even show up to their event, right? The fact that they are anxious to a certain amount shows that they care, that it's important to them. We want to harness that energy. But there is a difference. We know, uh, we know well from physiology that stress level works at some point when it really helps you, when it pushes you. And when it's a little bit higher, it's already not your friends. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and I feel that sometimes when I talk with people, because I work a lot of uh, parents, that sometimes we have, like, this is what I call, like, fake anxiety and fake yeah. stress. You know, like you have to be stressed that your baby is not talking when he's like two because everybody's babies are talking. Like you have this habit of like, you know, all moms are checking if uh, my baby is fine in the kindergarten. So like, why am I not stressed about this? Like, why I feel okay? So I should be also stressed because this is what good moms do. Like I need to call and check if everything's fine because otherwise I'm not a good mom. So we have this fake also stress that comes from the thing how we think we should react how yeah. how we think that other people react how do we get rid of this because for people it's very important very often how others perceive us and then we internalize this vision into us and we think that that is how good mom good parent good partner good baby behaves yeah absolutely i love what you're saying because it's so so true and um you know, that's really highlights this when our, our, our stress or our anxiety kind of goes over the top, then it, um, it actually backfires on us, right? It creates this, um, they said suffering for us and it limits our performance, limits our ability to do things well. It gets in the way, right? And so I think the first step of, of course, certainly as a, as a therapist, the first step is just really connecting with people, understanding them. I often say to people, you know, you know, when people, when you're feeling really anxious and somebody tells you to calm down, what's the first thing you want to do? And it's, it's not that these people are violent or anything, but they want to punch them. It's like, no, I won't calm down. Right. Like you tell a, tell a young mom whose child has gone off to school for the first time to calm down. And they're like, no, mama bear will, will rise up and say, no, that's my baby. Right. And so the first thing is just connecting with people and, and walking with them and understanding really what it's like for them. And then the second step for us is then looking at what are all the incredible values that that stress shows about you, right? I'll, I'll often use the illustration of young moms. If they're walking, you know, downtown and a busy street in, in, a, in a big city, right? And they've got a, a two-year-old or a three-year-old, do they hold the child's hand? And they'll say, yes, absolutely. So what if I told you, oh, just relax, they'll be fine. They'll say, no way. Well, why, why do you hold the ch child's hand? Well, it's because you're wanting to protect them because you love them and you care about them. And so your anxiety, your worry in that moment actually is a demonstration of your love and your care. And so we honor that part about it. And so when you worry about your child going off to school for the first time, it's actually a, um, a, a real demonstration of your love, your care, your, your, your passion for wanting your child to do well. And so we honor that. What happens if you feel like you're so relaxed that you... Like, you know, you don't really worry if someone said, well, maybe I'm not honoring uh, my child that well. Maybe I'm not such a good mom. What's wrong with me? So we like 
push ourselves into worry. I do this sometimes, you know, it's like, I'm so relaxed about my baby. I still have trust that he's great. And, but then other people say, well, are you not worried? So how do you shake it off this, this thing that you have to worry because other people worries? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, we have this sort of societal pressure from those around us to, oh, I should be worried because other people are worried. And, and I guess then it comes down to a question of what is it that you actually want? What is it that you're ho hoping for? Um, and so it's one thing to kind of acknowledge that, oh, yeah, that's a beautiful thing in, in others. But does that actually mean that you don't love your child if you are relaxed and calm with them? No, not at all. And there'll be times when you are concerned. And I would say that's a healthy, healthy concern. So it's finding that balance between, oh, what is the difference between healthy concern and what we'd call sort of magical thinking worry, and then evaluating it. And that's where, you know, then we get into what I would call some of the more methods, right? And um, for those that do worry excessively, how do we, you know, help them to, to be more uh, calm and relaxed in an appropriate way? And for those that may be feeling like, oh, I should be more worried, how do we help them to evaluate, oh, is that actually a reasonable thinking or not? right what uh, what worries usually patients bring to a patient uh, to your uh, to your um to your office oh that's a good question it's it's all over the place some are worried about what other people think of them um and what we call that kind of the mind reading um some will some will worry about things that may um that may happen so sort of the anticipatory you know, concern about um, something terrible is going to happen. I often will, will say to people, there's really two thoughts that are connected to almost, like almost all anxiety has two thoughts connected to it. The, the one thought is something terrible is going to happen, right? So that might look like people will look down on me and judge me. Or um, if, I, if I drive on the highway, you know, I'm going to get in an accident or um, something terrible happened to my child when they're at school, they'll, they'll get bullied. And so we're kind of thinking, imagining something terrible is going to happen, and then that creates this worry in us. The other thought is, um, I won't be able to handle it when it does. And that one often is the one that's more, more painful. You know, they think, oh, the, if somebody judges me, that'll be the worst thing. You know, my world will will come to an end and this will be awful, right? And so we use different approaches, different techniques to kind of face those fears head on, but we almost always use some measure of exposure. We can challenge those, those thoughts and say, was well, that actually realistic? To, are people actually going to judge me? And that helps us to defeat the first one. This, there are judgmental people out, but in the context of most of our friendships, people are actually if you ask them they'd be quite caring and and compassionate but the second one is oh i'm sorry the second one is the you know will i be able to handle it um that one is often the one more powerful one because there will be times when people judge us and, and that is a reality and so being able to face that head-on is really important too and this is exactly what i wanted to ask you about because um there is some groups who are like we always being judged for something. Some groups are more than others. As a psychologist, you probably very often hear, how could, as a psychologist, could you say this? How could you do this as a psychologist? 
like even as a group we're being uh, judged. Very often with the parents are being judged, like you know uh, that oh, yeah. you put too much clothes, not enough. You do too much fun, not enough. Like whatever you do, there is always going to be a group of people who are saying you're doing it wrong. Always, yeah. yeah. And you always have, of course, a very special group, like your mom, a stepmom, who's definitely going to say you did it wrong, right? So um, this is very difficult type of stress because when you're a parent, you're very sensitive. Oh, yeah. Nothing defines you more than, you know, how good can you protect your child and bring goodness uh, for him. So can you give us some advices, some tips, some methods? How do you cut yourself off from this judgment? How do you disconnect yourself so you can still do your truth and without being so stressed and get this anxiety from that somebody thinks you're doing it wrong when you believe you're doing it right. Yeah, the, the judgment stress is always such a powerful one. And, um, um, you know, I actually worked in a uh, um, pregnancy outreach center where we worked with young, young parents and my wife is actually the director and we taught prenatal classes together. And um, I, I love that you brought that out because one of the things we would tell people um, when we're doing prenatal classes, because they're often it's their first, first, first child they're having, is um, some children are, are like um, um, a really delicate flower that only grows in the most perfect conditions, right? And some children are like, in our area, like dandelions. Dandelions here will grow anywhere. And it doesn't matter what you do, right? They'll grow. And some and kids are just different. And so we would we tell people, you know, um, some kids, you know, will be more sensitive. They will cry more and you have to be more more attentive in different ways. And some kids fine. So we would tell people, if you have friends who have dandelions as children, they'll just they just grow and seem to flourish. And they're good sleepers early on, and they, they're good eaters early on. They do really well. If you have friends that are parents of those children, don't listen to anything they say. <laughs> Whereas if you have friends who've had a really challenging, you know, tough sleeper, and um, then pay attention to those ones because they've had to kind of walk through the gauntlet, in a sense, and walk through the more difficult cha challenges. And really, the message we were sending is, take a step back and, and, and look at a little bit of perspective, right? Every child is different. Every family is a little bit different. And so um, when we, we look at what can we do, right? Are we doing our best with the best knowledge that we have um, in working with our children, being attentive to them and, and learning and growing? Um, I, I heard a psychologist once, a child psychologist, say, good enough is good enough, whereas perfection is impossible and it actually makes it really difficult. And in our current day and age, with so much information out there, the information overload, you're going to get extreme, you know, parenting advice from every angle. And so you have to filter that, that through. And, um, and it is hard to kind of work through some of that, that judgment. Um, one of the exercises I do, um, I'm actually doing with my staff tomorrow because we're looking at doing kind of marketing work is what we call rejection practice where we actually work with each other. There's 
two techniques um, in Team CPT. One's called feared fantasy, and the other one's called rejection practice. And in feared fantasy, you imagine the worst things people can be thinking about you. And there's two rules. They not only think those things, they think even worse things. And the second rule is they're really awful. They come right up to you and say it. So we say it's it's like meeting the other friends or family or parents from hell who criticize everything you do. And we work in, you know, in groups of two where one person becomes the, you know, the parent or friend from hell. They just criticize you and attack you over and over and over again. And the purpose of it is to face that fear head on, because a lot of the times it's we're worried about what other people are thinking, not necessarily what they would actually say to us. And so when we face that fear head on, um, then it loses its power over us. It loses its its judgment. Um, then with rejection practice... Wait, I'm yeah, working here. I will come back to rejection practice. Um, does it mean that from your perspective, especially with the background of your wife, uh, do you think that would be actually reasonable that young parents, we, we, we go through this practice and we teach them that they will be judged because we're all very sensitive and as one of the part of our protecting our territory, very often, unfortunately, is attacking someone else. And I'm working mom, so I'll attack non-working mom. Non-working yeah. mom will attack working mom yeah. and so on. So do you think that is actually something we need to learn uh, before this, that that will happen? So deal with this before when you're still like strong. So when you're going to be that sensitive as a parent, you will be able to handle it better because that will happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um the one of the big things, and when you talked about sort of this habit of anxiety or, or depression, one of the habits that we have with anxiety is we avoid the things that we're afraid of, and then it actually enhances that fear, right? And we see this in, you know, in more tangible ways. Like I used to be afraid of horses, and so, but it wasn't a problem because I was horses. I would just be a, avoid horses. Well, what do you think my daughters got into? Horseback riding, and so now. We actually have two horses. And who, you know, if you'd asked me 20 years ago if I'd have, you know, been comfortable with horses, I, I would say, no, I was terrified. So I had to face that fear head on, whereas the avoidance actually made the fear enhanced. And so if we prepare people to face the fear, then we strengthen them. And two things happen. Either the fear subsides or they learn that they can tolerate it or, or both. And so then when we learn that that is actually going to happen... And we learn how to, um, we call it, it's tolerated or, or learn that we can handle it. Then when it happens, it doesn't bother us so much, right? And uh, before we get to go to rejection, uh, one more yeah. question about uh, this uh, stress and judgment. We very often being stressed by very close members of our family. Yeah. That in our research, it shows that mothers are being stressed the most from Mothers, their own mothers, mothers-in-law, then their husband, then best friend, and so on. So it's like the closest people to you. And they often have this advice that you don't really want. They often have ideas that are completely different than yours. What would be your recommendation, your method, your, your, your hints for these people, how they could say, 
like I don't want this like I don't want this judgment I don't want you to talk to me like this I don't want you to give me advice about my baby but in a way because team is always all about love and kindness in a way that it does feel that we're not breaking relationship with this people who we love also but in this moment they're not helping us they're stressing yeah. us more yeah put us more anxiety yeah oh I've seen it so so many times and you're absolutely right I'm so glad you, you bring this up we, we talk about two ways of dealing with those situations. One is what we call the internal solution, and that's working with how you internally are responding, right? And that's where some of the fear and fantasy and the other exercises can help you to be prepared to face that. So it doesn't, so when those attacks come, it's like you have this armor, they bounce off rather than impact you. The second thing, which I'm glad you're drawing attention to, is what we call the external solution is how do we interact with people when they are giving us advice that is not uh, requested, right? Um, and this is where, and this takes some significant practice and skill. Um, we use something called the five secrets of effective communication and sharing one, um, you know, how we are feeling when they do that. So we talk about the dynamics going on between us in that moment. So it might sound something like, oh, you know, I, I so appreciate how much you care about your grandchildren and that you want the best for them, right? That's what we call stroking to, to step, you know, mother-in-law, right? Um, and that's what I want too. So you're in agreement with them. You both want the best for your child. Um, and the last thing I'd want to do is have anything come between us or, or the relationship in our, our family because you're so important to me. I also wanted to let you know that it's sometimes hard for me to hear that because, um, you know, I'm going to be taking a different approach some of the time. That might be hard for you. I imagine that might feel kind of frustrating, annoying, that some of the choices I'm going to make as the parent will be different than the ones you made. And so I, I want to be careful not to kind of offend you when I when I do that, but at the same time let you know that... Um, Sometimes I feel kind of pressured and uncomfortable when you're giving advice, and I just wanted to let you know so that you you're aware of of, of this time uh, because I care so much about you. So there's a number of techniques that we're using there. You know, Mark, using... we'll stop you with this technique because this is very important. This is what you're saying. It's what all team uh, uh, therapists always recommend. And I, I can I share with you one problem I have with this? Technique? Yeah, go ahead. From my perspective, it is uh, it is great technique for um, for American culture. Ah. Like if you because you're very kind people, like you mm -hmm. you you the way you yeah. always try to do, you're very like politically correct. You like try to make everything nice and kind. I'm Ukrainian, so ah. I know that if I would say it in Ukraine, she said, "Oh my God, you're so oversensitive. What are you talking about?" Ah, like yeah. this is like what is like so it's like you know sometimes I'm uh, I'm wondering do you have any advice how can you use the same technique the same approach but in a culture that is not as polite as Americans because we're not all living in the same polite culture. Yeah, no, this is so so good that you've brought that to our attention because I'm Canadian and we're even nicer than Americans. <laughs> <I know. laughs> That's what we've heard anyway. Um, 
And this is so so key in 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 we've definitely come across this in a variety of uh, dynamics. The the language that you use has to meet with the um, the receiver, and so there are different ways of doing an I feel statement. And sometimes it can come across as overly sensitive and a little bit sort of like a like a victim. Like when I'm working with. Um, and I'll use men here in Canada who are hockey players and, you know, they, they work um, in these hard, hard jobs. I wouldn't use some of those feeling words in the same way, right? Because that would be like, what are you talking about? You know, I can't talk like right. that. So yeah, so... Example, how would you talk to him? So instead of saying, oh, you know, that really is, makes me feel kind of sad to hear that, you'd say, what? That's that's really pissing me off. <laughs> dude like that doesn't that doesn't land right you know and I, I mean respect respect brother I mean I respect the way you're, you're coming at me and you know you're, you're a strong guy and at the same time you know there's a time and a place and this is really hard to hear this advice from you because I'm going a different direction you know and I, re I really want us to be on the same page on the same team because it's important you know we're we're in this together Right, so I'm still using stroking and I feel statements and still using disarming, agreeing with what they say, but the language you use will be different depending on who you're talking. Much like when you're working with teenagers, if you talk too long with a teenager, they will shut you out. Yeah. Right. It's, I'm so happy that you said this because it's such an important point that in the end of the day, it's important how how our message being received and in order to be received properly, we need to speak the same language. So 100%. we need to find the same words and the same uh, settings. So I don't want somebody to be discouraged by team just because it's so kind, but it's, uh, it's just showing how we, what steps do we have, but language can be different. And I'm happy Absolutely. that Mike tried to uh, mark uh, some tough hockey players from Canada <laughs> we should talk to. Maybe you can use it to you talking to your uh, father-in-law. So uh, yeah. to summarize this, how do you do um, um, how do you do this exercise with the fear? So do, can you recommend, can you put it into the steps so people can actually practice this after listening to us? So first step is you imagine what the worst can uh, people can say about you? We well, have yeah, so the the fear fantasy would be more for that internal solution where you, you get, um, you know, a friend to kind of really attack you with all the worst things so that you become either comfortable with it or know you can handle it. The second would be the external, and that would be kind of practicing how to interact with them, which is a different exercise. And the way to do that would be um, to write down what people have actually said to you in the past. So if it's your mother-in-law and she said, oh, you need to be doing this, right? Then you take a look at how can you respond and write out a response using the five secrets in the language that mother-in-law will most relate to, right? Like if you have, you know, a very um, quiet, gentle person, then you use very gentle words. If you have a very, you know, gregarious, outgoing, you know, direct person. I mean, even in, in, in the U.S., sometimes we, we joke about people from New York, right? They're a lot more direct and in your face. And it can be very... Um, it, it's much more empathic and much more connecting to be more direct with them. You're actually honoring their ability to handle it. Whereas if you're too gentle, it's like telling them they can't handle it. 
So, um, so write out what your response would be, then evaluate, okay, is this going to be a connecting response where we're now more on the same page? Not that they're going to agree with your, the direction you're going, you know, with your, your child necessarily, but that the relationship is more connected. You can tell somebody almost anything as long as they feel good about it when you're done. We, we do this with therapists. You know, how do you tell a, a, a patient or a client that you're angry with them or that you're setting a boundary with them? Well, the key is you don't want them to feel disrespected or um, dismissed in any way, even when you're setting this boundary, because that's what you're doing when you're, you're doing with, with a mother-in-law, for example. You want her to still feel respected in how you're communicating. Uh, that is uh, uh, so difficult, what you're saying. So I'll oh, give some yeah. examples here. So let's say that uh, my husband is not uh, is working a lot, and I feel that he's not have, he's not giving me any help at home. So I feel like I have to do everything by myself. I have to work, I have to take care of children, I have to take care of food, everything. So how do I say him in a loving way that he does not feel bad, just you know, get his shit together and start helping me because it's working. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, there's a few ways you could do that. The, one way is to acknowledge out loud the feelings that you're feeling in the moment. And so an example might be, you know, um, you know, honey or babe, I'm, I'm noticing that I'm feeling kind of pissed off and frustrated and, and angry. And I, I don't like when I get that way because I want to attack you. You don't like it too. And you don't like you want to get that way either, right? And so now we're actually expressing our feelings, but you're doing it in a way that invites him in to evaluate your experience rather than attacking him and blaming him for it. So you could say, you're making me feel this way, and then he's going to just pull back. Or you could say, you know, I'm noticing I'm feeling this way, and I don't like when I get that way because, you know, you're the most important person in the world to me, and I want to be on the same team. I, I need you to know where I'm at. And I'm wondering if I could share that with you right now. And so then you invite him into your experience and um, and allow him to kind of be the superhero in a way. I mean, you know, it's a bit stereotypical, but I think most men, they want to be the hero. They want to come in and, you know, fix things at times. Well, it's evolutionally. We know that this is how men are being built, that they need to fix stuff. That's why they need to have a problem to be able to fix I always say it's my biggest relationship advice that if you want to have a good relationship, you need to let your man to be in Napoleon pose at least three times a day. So <laughs> good. And I think it always works. But that works like the opposite way too. He needs to be me to be a princess and like more beautiful than Halle Berry, you know, so and that yeah. time we find you go. So it works yeah. that way. Um, so let's uh, do about uh, rejection practice because that is very important. A rejection is what is crucial that what we know from neurology, neurology that rejection feels like physically like pain. It, it evokes the same areas in our brain as physical pain. So when somebody stops loving us, when, somebody, when we do not get a job, when our friend dismiss us for another friend, we do feel physical pain. So our heart is literally then broken. We feel painful. So rejection is something that we all fear, that is difficult to handle. How do we uh, prepare ourselves to be more resistant and to have more ad adult 
like mature attitude towards resistance towards rejection yeah yeah this is such a such a beautiful one and and really i think albert uh, ellis um you know was one of the ones who developed this and david burns has you know refined it in in, in team cbt and and that's actually to um to practice getting rejected um there's actually a great ted talk uh, called 100 days of rejection and um you can you know google it where this gentleman went out and every day he would try to get rejected by asking for things that you know he thought people wouldn't likely um follow through on he'd ask people for money or ask them to do things for him and thinking to himself i would reject somebody if they asked me that and what he found and discovered was um that oftentimes people would not rejected, but they would actually agree to, to do what he'd ask. And that was mind-blowing to him. But the more important thing that he found was that it actually became kind of fun to be rejected. He realized he could handle it. It, it, it wasn't the end of the world. And as he did it more and more, it became less and less um, anxiety-inducing, anxiety-provoking. That natural kind of even pain response that you talk to um, became more of a fun exercise. Please don't tell out everybody that you, like, they have to do 100 days of rejection in order to yeah, get yeah. more resistance. No, you don't have to do it. That. You could do it more simply than that. I think that was just a okay. great demonstration. But um, one, of my, one of my great, great fears was that people who had a, a kind of higher level of education than me or, you know, more prestigious profile than I did would reject me, right? And we see this now kind of in social media and stuff all the time, right? Yeah, who can have the most followers. Um, and so I was actually in a class where there was a training group where there was um, three other people in, in the training group and they all had higher level of, of education and degree than me. You know, some psychiatrists and some taught at, you know, Ivy League schools or went to Ivy League schools like Stanford and UCLA and others were researchers with top neurofeedback people and and, you know, I'm in Canada, I went to a smaller school, and I don't have a doctorate, right? And so um, I felt very intimidated by these other people. Well, how can I be teaching, you know, moving on and teaching if there's people who have a higher level of education or more prestige than me? You know, doctors, lawyers, psychiatrists, those sorts of things, you know, the high-powered business people. And so we did a rejection practice where I faced my worst fear and and... And I asked them individually, you know, you know, I'm, I'm getting my website together and I'm wondering, would you be willing to kind of endorse me as somebody who is a, you know, a trainer? And their job in this exercise was to reject me soundly. And they would say, oh, Mike, please don't tell me, tell people that you even know me. I'm so embarrassed that you're in this class. How did you get in here? I mean, you don't even have a doctorate, right? And and it was horrifying and, and that pain, you know, internal response that you described just was like flooding throughout my body. And I asked, you know, I think it was about 14 or 15 times and it just felt worse and worse each time. And then on the 16th time, when I got rejected, I suddenly started to laugh because something shifted in me where I went, this is absolutely ridiculous. These are you know, four of the most wonderful people I've ever met. We've been working together, learning these techniques and training, and they're the, the arguably the most compassionate, amazing, 
you know, people I've ever had the chance to work with. Lee Harrington was one of my mentors in, in Team CBT. I'm not sure if you're going to be doing uh, an interview with Lee or not, but um, I, I hope you get a chance to. She was one of the ones that led the exercise, and I'm, you know, so grateful to her now because now when I teach or train and I have people, I had a guy in my class once, I'm sure he had like a, you know, 170, 180 IQ, whatever the highest number is, because he was absolutely brilliant. And now when I get people like that into my training groups and my classes, I get really excited because they're the ones that ask me the toughest questions, right? Like even when Mario sent me, you know, this invite to connect with, with Julia, I was like, ooh, that's a little intimidating because, you know, she asks tough questions. She gets to the heart of things and, you know, she's a brilliant mind. And, and now I get really excited about that because I think, oh, I'm going to learn something new. This will be amazing. So... How do we do that? We, we figure out what are the people we'd be most afraid of, right, of being rejected by. And David Burns himself, when he was in college, he and his friend, they weren't particularly, you know, good-looking, you know, well-styled guys, but they went out on the campus and they into the most attractive women that they, you know, that they could find and asked for dates and got rejected like 150 times or something. And pretty soon they, it didn't bother them at all, right? So they, they faced that. They, they realized rejection is not the end of the world. It's actually, you know, salespeople do this all the time. The best salespeople, they don't take rejection as a problem. They take it as an opportunity to get to the next person that will be likely a better sale, right? Why waste your time on somebody who's gonna, not going to buy from you? Let's get to the next one. Can I share with you my technique? Yeah, love to hear it. Um. It was born when I was the first time as a student on a conference of Ericsson, and we had this exercise with hypnosis. It was something that, you know, that was squeaking a door and always, you know, I had some conference, somebody always on and off walking, very annoying, but these doors were constantly squeaking. And at some point, the person who was doing this say, saying, the more it squeaks, the deeper you get into hypnosis. And I think this is get to me so much. That every time, it does not mean it works always. It does not mean rejection is not painful for me. But I'm, as, as a person who works on social media a lot, I get a lot of rejection. Like I read yeah. somebody who is more like bigger, famous, and ask for the like live talk, and they don't even answer to me. I will like say, no. And, and when I was very small still, I, I decided that if I'm going to get discouraged now, nothing will happen. So I decided to change it for the, for this, the more, the more I get rejected, the more I can work. So the one day this person will ask me to have interview with this. Yeah, there we go. And this is work. this worked many times already. Like for example, three years ago was asking a magazine, psychological magazine, if I can write for them. They said, no, we accept only stars. They have to be either star psychologist or like celebrity. And now they're asking me to write and they paid me for this. And yeah. it's just three years. So I think for me, this thinking that the more you reject me, the more I'm going to prove you that you're wrong. And the, the faster I'm going to get to this, that you're going to ask me for what, what, for what you rejected me for. So I think it's important how we, how we build our mindset around this. I love that. I love that. It sounds a little bit, 
It sounds a little bit, sorry for interrupting, it sounds a little bit like a technique that we call um, time projection, where you imagine yourself, you know, three years in the future as being successful, and you think to yourself, ah, they're going to be the ones calling me now. And so what advice would, you know, Julia three years from now give Julia starting out? She would say, hang in there, keep going, because one day they're going to be the ones calling you, and they're going to pay you for it. Right? I love that. The problem... The problem with the rejection, I think, and I'm wondering what is your advice for this, that some things it's easy for me, for example, to deal with because there are some aspects in my life where I'm very confident. Like I'm confident of, of uh, me as an, I don't know, speaker. I'm pretty confident how I can translate psychology into everyday language. So I've, and I feel that parents first that I promote is a good thing. So I feel confident that it's needed. And so then it's a little bit easy for me with the rejection because I can say, I know I will make it. I know I will be big and I know you will regret this. I just like, just, just, just stick a little bit with yourself a little bit, but I know you will make it. And there are some aspects where it's difficult for me when I'm very sensitive. Like the nicest thing anybody ever told to me, it was you yesterday who said, my brother is also gifted with the dyslexia. And it was for me like you kissed me oh. right in my heart. And I'm very grateful for that. Oh, so nice. When, thank you so much for this. So when somebody like picking on me with a, with a d dyslexia, for example, said, I'm not going to talk with somebody who can't even write one sentence, right? <laughs> I have to say that that is so painful that I can't really handle this well. So is it, do you have any, because to handle rejection uh, well, you need to have some sense of confidence in this area. So what do you do to gain some confidence? So aspects when you're very sensitive, like in my case, it's my dyslexia. In case of others, their motherhood, especially if you're like working or not working, it's sometimes very sensitive. Our fathers work very much and they feel like maybe I don't contribute enough into bringing up my baby. Maybe I should do even more. So the sensitive part, how do we work on gaining confidence so we can we can um, deal with the rejection or with the judgments? Yeah, yeah, that's such a um, such a good question. And um, I'm, I was just so appreciative of you even sharing that with me um, because my my brother and I, um, we used to call it hockey talk because he was a he was a really good athlete, good hockey player, and you know we, he just mixes up the words and the rest of that. And another really great friend of mine who's a phenomenal therapist also has what I call it the gift of dyslexia because you have this ability to kind of connect in a different way. Um, but it is sensitive because it's painful when when you're criticized in some of those areas, right? And 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 then it feels like ah. Oh. So the first thing, if somebody came to me and they said, you know, it's so painful for me when people kind of criticize me and, and reject me, you know, because this is something that's a part of me. It's not like I, you know, tried to, to be this way. It's just who, who I am. And so the first question I asked would ask would be, was that something you'd like to overcome that, that, that sensitivity and that fear? Would you like to become a powerhouse in it? And... Um, and then we do what we call a little bit of that sort of, you know, agenda setting, um, because it's not my, it's not my, you know, purpose to force anyone to overcome those things. Maybe it would make sense just to leave it as it is and, 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 and not to face it head, head on. That would be okay too, because it is a, a tender and sensitive thing. But if you really wanted to, and I'd say, okay, well, let's take a look at 
what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that kind of triggers that sensitivity? Is it you worried about being criticized when you send out an, an email or when you write something? Is it worried about, um, you know, somebody kind of attacking you? And then we could, you know, use a number of different techniques, you know, examine the evidence, uh, reattribution, re you know, look at, you know, who's really the sender of the message? Do we take, take it, you know, with a grain of salt? And things like, you know, fear, fantasy, rejection practice, actually having somebody criticize you ex excessively until the point at which you, it's almost like you develop like this thick skin towards it where it doesn't impact you in the same way, or you suddenly realize I can handle that. I'm, I'm, I, I'm becoming a powerhouse with that, that one now too. Um, and the exposure is always painful. It's not going to be a, you know, fun exercise. It, it's not fun to get rejected. It's, it's not fun to be criticized. And, and yet, um, it is incredible to have this inner sense that, oh, I can, I can handle that. And in fact, it can become, David calls him, talks about the 100% solution and the 200% solution. The 100% solution is, it actually doesn't bother me that much anymore, right? If I'm afraid of public speaking, I, I can public speak. The 200% solution is the thing that bothered me the most now is my greatest asset, right? Like I had an ADD diagnosis because I'm ADD and attentive. And so writing for me is quite challenging too. I get too distracted. And I used to think of it as this sort of problem or, you know, um, prison sentence in a way. And now I, I look at it as one of my greatest gifts. You know, more cats and I are just finished writing a book on deliberate practice. I don't consider myself a writer at all, and he's a he's a brilliant visionary. And yet, I'm really good at kind of reviewing and looking details. And uh, I tell people, they say, oh, you know, you're so smart. And I say, you know, what, you know what? I think I think the reason they invited me into some of these roles is because I'm just dumb enough that I can make it simple for other people to understand. <laughs> because if I can't understand it, then I got to make it simpler, right? And so, in a sense, I'm glad my IQ isn't as high as it is because it allows me this gift of not being so so brilliant that uh, I, I can connect more deeply with people. So the thing that becomes our greatest fear can become our greatest gift, right? And that's where, even when I sent you that email, I thought, oh, you know, some of the people that have had the most incredible impact on me share that gift of delight, dyslexia. It's very beautiful what he said, and I want to stress out a couple of things that Mike said that we all remember. First of all, that rejection is painful, and expect that it's not going to be painful. You're going to say, oh, like, whatever, I'm so happy, and I'm, like, so delighted. It's, it's not drinking martini on a beach. It is painful, and that's it. So uh, we can learn how to handle this and how to not to feel that we are this pain and we are this rejection, not to internalize it but it's always going to be unpleasant. It's like dentist, like no matter what it is, like it is unpleasant. It's not eating ice cream, so it is unpleasant. And yep. second thing that I really like what Michael said, we can decide not to work on it. Like we can decide that we leave it as it is. So I'm not going to, I like, we, I, I don't want to become not sensitive about some issue. Like I want to be sensitive about somebody not criticizing uh, my motherhood so I uh, like I'm gonna be I don't know always careful what I'm doing and revising my strategy like for example well I oh. want to be 
Like I want to decide that I'm going to be always very emotional about my dyslexia. So I still can practice my assertiveness, for example, like whatever it is, like we can, we can leave it and that's fine too. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, that sensitivity can, you know, for some people it can, uh, you know, really motivate them to be more advocates in some of those areas, advocates for young moms. Right, who need another just supportive listening ear to say, "Hey, this is what I'm thinking and what I'm thinking," you know, and or you know, or or being more open about dyslexia and saying, "Hey, let's be more sensitive to other people who, yeah, you know, um, struggle in school at, at times and or with writing, and and that's okay. That's a beautiful thing." This is what he's saying. It's very important. Also, it's an exercise that we can understand. Uh, how we can use our uh, weak points. I remember how when I had my uh, backbone broken and I was um, very Ooh. tough accident. And uh, I was very complaining that it's like, there is so much badness in this, like that I cannot walk, I cannot do this and this. And my friend told me something at that point, I thought ridiculous, but now like, I promise you every time I, I like, I see this thing, I'm thinking about it, she said, now, when it's, you understand how difficult it is to walk when you're handicapped, you will never be on a spot for handicaps when you're uh, uh, parking because you will understand and you will always help people who have this problem. You will always be against the people who park on their spots. So at least something good will happen from this. And every time I see a parking spot for handicapped, like, it never happened to me that I was even close to the spot. Because I think, oh no, I do remember how it is. Like, even if it's for one minute, I'm not gonna stop here. So I think it's important when we have some pain to think, to stop for a second and think, this is how person feels when it gets rejected. This is how somebody feels when somebody does not like somebody's work. So it will teach you how to talk to this person, how to deal with this when your friend is in pain. Not not saying, oh, just relax or calm down. You understand yeah. this pain. You can connect with this because you have it. So, so to connect with your pain so you can be better as a human, as a friend, as a partner. That is, I find, like really like beneficial in experiencing your own pain. Oh, that's beautiful. beautifully said, Julia. You know what? I, I often relate to people when I think back on my journey and the most painful, really horrific things that I've, I've experienced um, personally, I would never wish some of those things on other people. And yet at the same time, I look back and think those experiences are arguably some of my greatest gifts that I can now offer to others. And um, and so there's there's value and there's purpose in it. Not that I'd hope for, for any of the, the, those things on, on people. Thought, but, yeah. Right. And when you're talking about this, I came to my mind very often uh, people say, where is the where is the boundaries between like finding goodness in something bad and just single like simple rationalization? Mm. How do we know when we're just not protecting our ego, saying, "Well, it's great that I have dyslexia because I can see things differently. It's great that I have this accident because now I'm so sensitive." Like so, because how do you also find the space to be honest with ourselves and not rationalize, just really honestly find um, some goodness in something? Oh, yeah. Wow, that's a good question. I, they, they warned me you were going to ask good questions and tough ones, and that's a good one. 
Um, okay. You know, I, I think finding that balance between, um, I mean, ultimately, we did an exercise in our staff the other day. If they said if there was one character quality that you could give the world, right, one virtue that you could give the world, what virtue would it be? And, you know, kindness or generosity or whatever. And, and the one I, I chose and one of the other my colleagues chose was humility. And um, I think if you're exploring each of those things from that context of humility, right, um, I've been really incredibly blessed with abilities, um, you know, kind of musically. My mom got me up on stage when I was three, and so I had music in my background. And athletically, my dad was a real athlete, and so I had a chance to kind of race bikes at a pretty high level. And, and, and yet, you know, in each of those things, there's been some pain. There was injuries and then, you know, things that were, were losses. And, um, and, and I look back now and I think, okay, how can I use those things what is the gift that I can now bring to others in this rather than justifying my behavior to, you know, kind of hide behind it, saying, ah, uh, how, how can that now be used in a way that will be, you know, caring and, and, and loving to others? And I think that the humility, I'm going to fail at it all the time, right? Anyone who says I'm humble automatically <laughs> kind of goes, well, that's a bit of an arrogant statement. So, um, but it's, like, I think, a constant striving, right? And so that, to me, that's a perspective that would help to, you know, e evaluate, um, you know, is this, is this kind of hiding or kind of self-preservation, right? That Is it honest? Is it, yeah, or, or is it is it honest? Yeah, did that help answer that question? Yeah, I think it reminds me a little bit of what he's saying with uh, uh, Victor Frank, he's saying, who is an existential no. psychologist. Yeah, who is all love saying him. That, yeah. And I, to be honest, I stopped liking him a little bit less after last book of Yalom. He a little yep. bit destroyed this for me. I don't know if you read this autobiography of Yalom. I was a little bit angry with Yalom for this, you know? Oh, okay. But... Maybe I won't read it. <laughs> no, I don't read it. I love Yellen with all my heart, but the yeah. other book was like, ah, you should never wrote this. Anyway, Yellen, um, which supports a lot of neurological uh, also uh, research, saying that purpose is yeah. something that is goes beyond us, purpose of yeah. our life, but also what we can give to others with our life, with what we know, with who we are. This is what helps us to survive even the most difficult situation. Making sense of this stuff and, and knowing that there is for something. And just really not just saying, oh, it's all for something God wants it, but just really finding this purpose, feeling this purpose, leading by this purpose. This is what helps us. So this is, mm, I think, what Mike said for me was a little bit about that. So if you can really find the purpose it's not rationalization, but you really like feel it. Rationalization is escape. That was very smart word, like very like keyword for me. If you're escaping from something, that is when you're trying just to rationalize and forget about it and like, you know, not seeing it. But if you're looking for purpose, if you're looking for sense, if you're looking for something that can benefit you or others, it means like you have this post-traumatic growth. You're trying to find something better in something that is a little bit shit because shit happens in our life. Oftentimes, I'll tell myself in the midst of it, um, I even just and it's a kind of 
small example, I had frozen shoulder this past year and there's no no reason you get it. It just kind of comes and then it goes away and you know, six to nine months. I have a wonderful physiotherapist and physician who helped me work through it. But um, the other thing I tell myself is sometimes I don't know what it is, but that's okay. I'm okay not knowing some of the time. Just at times it it doesn't come to until later. I don't I don't see the purpose until later, and so I I give myself a um, an opportunity just to be patient with it. Right? Um, there's a I mean I'm not a huge country music fan, but I like some country music. But it, there's a Garth I think it's a Garth Brooks song called "I Thank God for Unanswered Prayers," and you know it just talks about him you know when he was a young guy really being in love with this woman and he just thought she was the best thing ever and you know he then she broke up with him and he thought his life was over um then later on you know he met kind of his soulmate and he looked back and went oh i'm so glad that those prayers i had you know weren't answered because something better was on the horizon and so there can be a little bit of this sometimes i don't even know in the moment what the purpose is and that's okay to not know um sometimes it will come 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 later um, I can strive for it. I can look for it, and, and that gives me, um, I don't know, more uh, kind of resiliency. I don't know if I like that word more. Ability to hang in there in the midst of some of that suffering, because um, I know there is a purpose. I maybe don't know what it is, but I still know that there is in some way, and that it can be used at some point. I think it's very important what you say because we often feel now with this word pressure that we need to know our purpose of life, why we're yeah. here, what happened. But it's not true. It's very often that it happens afterwards. Like we find the purpose in a process. It's not like shit happens to us with a little card from God. This is why it happens yeah. to you. Like, like it, it's not, it's not happens this way. So you need to, like, you need to find this purpose and it's in a search of purpose. So we need to have some time. And that's okay not to know. And that's okay even if you're 40 or 50 not to know. That's why I love Yalam so much because he's always saying that even in the last day of your life, that's okay if only in the last time day of your life you live fully as yourself, that was worth it. And yeah. I think we just need to be patient with ourselves. I think that would be the thing that I would wish we have all the superpowers, you know, being patient with ourselves. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I want to finish our conversation with uh, um, with something that we start from the beginning. You train a lot of young kids, and I want you you probably like have a lot of observation. What is the difference between like real winners, champions, yeah. and the one who are number two or three? Can you share with us what is it in the mindset? Because it's important, to, like that we all know so from science, it is mainly mindset because they're all talented, they all work very hard. So what is it in the mind that makes them different? Ah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, you know, even when I was an athlete and coming through, we talked about kind of having the whole package, right? Like there was some who were very talented but didn't really like the work and some who, you know, worked really hard but weren't that talented. And then there were some who, you know, had both talent and, and worked hard. But then there was the ones who were kind of went to another level, and um, you know, I think there's a there's probably a few things that are there 
there is a, a mindset of, and, and I think this even goes with the rejection practice, right? When we think of the great athletes, um, you know, the, the classic example of Babe Ruth was the strikeout king, but as the baseball player, he's also one of the greatest home run hitters of all time. <laughs> and so, you know, he was okay being rejected, striking out. Um, and so there, it's more of a, uh, a will to win rather than a fear of losing. And so they're okay. They're not afraid of losing, but they love to, to win. And so they're willing to risk and, and go to another level. And they, they train. Um, there's a Canadian Olympian, Olympian um, I think her name was Marnie McBean, who was an, a rower, won a gold medal in the Olympics, in, I think in the 80s or 90s. And I loved one of her quotes, and she said, I don't train so that um, I win on my good days. I train so that even when I'm having a bad day, I can still win. And the because you never know. Saying the same. Yeah. Ron yeah. Russell, her mom was uh, making her train even when she broke her finger at uh, all. Uh, uh, and she she said, "Mom, other moms are not like this. It's like I'm not like other moms. Like run, yeah, so, yeah. Run the Russell, my v big idol. It's exactly the same. We need to train like we should win in our bad days, and it's beautiful wow. what he said. Yeah. I mean, I think I think of some of my my best performances when I was an an, an athlete, and they were often in races where the the beginning early. It's something a lot of the races were four or five hours long. A lot of the races I. I wouldn't feel great at hour two. I'd be like, oh, I mean, I'm in there, but not great. But uh, at hour three and a half, suddenly I'm, you know, with some of the top guys and, and it had come around, right? So there's this mindset of uh, it doesn't matter how, how you're feeling those ones. You can still kind of, and I think that's where rejection practice, you know, is such a, that's exactly the same now that I, I do when I'm working with other therapists and developing them. One of our rules is you're not allowed to, have your clients do something that you haven't either done yourself or wouldn't be willing to do. And so if you want to do rejection practice, you need to make sure you do it yourself. And, you know, you're inst instilling that, that message. When I talk about exposure with clients, to me, it's, I, I, the last thing I'd want to do is deny them the opportunity to go to a higher level. I really believe deeply in my clients. Like I, I believe in them and much like with my young athletes. I believe in them, right? And I send that message when we do these kind of rejection practice, feared fantasy, any of these exercises, they're intense. I want them to have, have the, the knowledge that let's go where it's painful. Let's go where it's hard. I believe in you. My favorite coaches are the ones who pushed me the hardest, right? Um, and we no, I do that gently together, of course, but. I think, Mike, for me, this is how I define a role of parents because very often, uh, I'm being asked what kind of methods, what is better Montessori or what is better like gentle parenting, this and this. And I'm saying the best is just being connected with the child and be his world oh. that he knows you believe in him so much that he can make a mistake and you're still going to be behind him, that he can go to this difficult moment and you're going to be behind him. This is the best map that you can have. The rest is just techniques. It's irrelevant. It's like you can use it. You may not use it. You can make a mistake, but this feeling that you're always there, no matter what, that your life is unquestionable, that you cannot, nobody can take this love away from, from you, that not even the worst mistake he can make, 
this is, I believe, how I define, you know, good parenting. Like if you have, give your child this feeling and he knows this, and this way, like you can make this mistakes, be just good enough, not perfect, and it's still going to be great. Yeah, hard times develop character in so many ways, right? Yeah, and, and being there to walk with them rather than protect them from it. Not that we don't want to protect our children, but at the same time, there's that, that balance, right? My youngest daughter experienced some bullying at one time, and one of the things we, we said to her was, oh, and this is a very painful experience, and yet she's very sensitive and very caring. She was standing up for someone else, and then some of her friends turned on her. And I said, but this is an incredible experience. You know, here you are in, you know, 11 years old, and you're learning some things that will serve you for the rest of your life. And, and she's heading, she's going to do psychology coming in September, going to university, and um, she's already way smarter than me. And <laughs> it, I'm sure we'll do an incredible work because she's such a champion of people who've been, um, been hurt, right? Um, she understands it deeply. And so having that opportunity, not that we would wish that on her. Nobody wishes their child would get bullied, but at the same time, it was such a cool opportunity to to walk with her and guide her and connect with her at a deeper level. Plus, she has really parents' first experience, having parents who like live by what they say. It's very important for child to experience, isn't it? Yeah, we've been so, so fortunate to, so blessed in so many ways, so... Thank you so much that I could um, talk to you and you could share with me something that I find very, very useful because I believe that psychology is extremely practical and useful for every day. And I'm happy that you could present us also some team uh, methods that are, can, you know, can be learned and can be used to flourish. It's been a ton of fun hanging out with Julia. I um, had pretty high expectations based on some of the things Mariusz and others had said, and you have um, gone above and beyond and um, just feel very very connected and, and fortunate to have had this opportunity thank you and I hope we're going to talk not the, not the last time yeah let's do it again sometime for sure be wonderful <laughs>